Hello, everyone, and welcome to All Shall Be Well. I'm Anne Boyd, host of All Shall Be Well, a podcast by InterVarsity's Women in the Academy and Professions. We're here to support women in their God-given callings into the university and beyond. So if you're a graduate student or a faculty member, an administrator or a student in professional school, a scholar in between jobs, or simply a person who supports women in the academic world, then this podcast is for you. Let me invite you to peek into the finale of our fall book club, where my colleague, Jasmine Obeseker, interviews Dr. Vinoth Ramachandra, IFES Secretary for Dialogue and Social Engagement and author of the book, Sarah's Laughter, Doubt, Tears, and Christian Hope. Their conversation becomes beautifully deep right from the start as we hear about Vinoth's own journey into Christian faith, his understanding of the deep meaning found within the suffering of Jesus, and his encouragement toward richer and more vibrant church communities. It's a conversation that emboldens one's faith in the best way, and I'm so glad you can join us. We are sharing the entirety of the book club finale here in this episode, and it begins with Jasmine's introduction of our guest. So let's dive right in. We're so glad you're here with us. Hello and welcome everyone. It's great to have you join us today. This is the finale of the book club hosted by Women in the Academy Professions, where we discussed Sarah's Laughter, Doubt, Tears, and Christian Hope by Dr. Vinod Ramachandra earlier in the fall. And today we are privileged to have Dr. Ramachandra with us to answer our questions. Uh, before we start our Q&A, I would love to introduce Vinod to you. Vinod grew up in Sri Lanka and went to England for his university education. He holds both a bachelor's and a doctoral degree in nuclear engineering from the University of London. He returned to Sri Lanka in 1980 and pioneered to establish a national Christian university ministry, the Fellowship of Christian University Students. He was its founding general secretary, a position in which he served for many years, followed by a stint as a South Asia regional secretary for IAPS, the International Fellowship of Evangelical Students. IFS is a global partnership of over 150 university-level Christian movements, and is currently on its senior leadership team as secretary for dialogue and social engagement. His multifaceted international ministry includes promoting among students and professors a holistic, dialogical engagement with the world of the university and helping Christian graduates act with Christian integrity in the face of the social, cultural, and political challenges they face in their national context throughout the world. I've known Vinod for 30 years, and there's a lot more that I could say about him, but I won't. I will add, though, that he is the first person who opened my imagination to the sheer breadth of Christian discipleship and expanded my vision of what following Jesus might look like. So thank you, Vinod, for all the ways that you have influenced me, and it's a privilege for me to interview you today. Thank you for being with us, and welcome. We delve into the book. I'm sure folks would like to know something about your own faith journey. Could you tell us how you came to Christ? 
Um, I was uh, born and grew up in Sri Lanka uh, in a very nominal Christian family. Um, my mother was a nominal Anglican. My father was actually Hindu, but was baptized into the Anglican church. Uh, just a nominal conversion, I think, just to please her side of the family. So um, I had a, a nominal Anglican sort of background, occasionally going to church, uh, going to an Anglican school, boys' school. Uh, when it came to confirmation, I refused to be confirmed because I uh, told the, the priest I was not a Christian and I didn't anyway understand what confirmation meant. But I read voraciously all kinds of books in school. And in my last two years in school, I remember reading extensively in the Bible, particularly the New Testament. I had disliked uh, religious people, Christians or Buddhists or whatever I thought, all of them were a bunch of hypocrites. The Christian students I knew I found pretty boring. But when I came to the Gospels, I was just attracted to the person of Jesus. I think I fell in love with Jesus. And what drew me, I think, was his wit, the parables, the harsh things that he said about the religious establishment, the religious leaders of his day. And I remember thinking, I wish I could have said this to the clergy and pastors whom I knew. <clears throat> and I remember uh, this was uh, my final year in school, uh, kneeling by my bedside and just saying, I believe you're risen from the dead and I want to give you my life. And I went and spoke to my school chaplain, said I've become a Christian and I'd like to be confirmed. So I was confirmed just before my 18th birthday, uh, along with a lot of 12 and 13 year old boys. And for me, it was uh, my witness to my family and to my friends that I had become a Christian, a committed Christian. It was very individualistic. I didn't really know any committed Christians my own age. And it's only a few months later when I went to England that I got involved with a university Christian fellowship and local churches uh, in which I guess I found my feet as a Christian. Thank you. So let's get to the book. Sarah's Laughter is different from other books you've written. It is more personal and can resonate at an existential level with many. You invite us to be real with God when we hurt, open our eyes to God's own suffering, and flesh out the nature of hope. What are a couple of significant takeaways you'd like to leave with readers? Well, <clears throat> I think we need to hold in creative tension our beliefs, the beliefs that we have picked up, maybe through churches, our Christian families, or whatever with our experience of life. Belief and experience need to be held together and actually interrogate each other. So when we come across experiences that jar us, that disturb us, that shake our traditional beliefs, uh, we shouldn't retreat into sort of dogmatism, just clinging to our, to our beliefs, but actually uh, begin to question them. Just as our beliefs shape our experience, our experiences also ought to shape our beliefs, either deepening them or reinforcing them. So I think that's the first thing I would want to encourage people to do. And in a sense, that's how theology also develops. 
that when the church encounters new uh, situations, they may be cross-cultural situations, political, ethical situations, it's forced to examine uh, its foundations. Why do we believe what we believe and where did we get our beliefs from? And then our, hopefully uh, our understanding of God, our understanding of ourselves and of the world uh, begins to widen and deepen. And that's how theology historically develops. Uh, if, on the other hand, we just throw out our beliefs, the moment experience sort of challenges them, then we end up in a sort of a wishy-washy theological liberalism, where we just uh, jump on the latest bandwagon, and we have nothing actually distinctive or challenging to say as a Christian church. So I think belief and experience need to be held together in a creative tension. So that, I think, would be the first uh, takeaway. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, the second would be that to understand that the God who in Christ suffers for us also suffers with us. And so if we believe in this God and we worship this God, we are called to also likewise embrace the suffering of others, not just our own suffering, but to be with others, whether it's individuals or communities, in the suffering that they experience, uh, to put ourselves in places where people are suffering oppression, exploitation, the marginalized, the vulnerable. That's a test of whether we truly worship uh, a suffering God. <clears throat> and so the resurrection of Christ is not the reversal of the cross, certainly it reverses the verdict of the cross. But the resurrection is a vindication of the cross. It's God telling us that the way of the cross, the way of Jesus, is a truly human way to live because it's the truly divine way. It's the way that God works in history, the way that God works in our world. It's through weakness and suffering, through vulnerability. And so Christians should be people who embrace weakness, vulnerability, suffering, in solidarity with others. And that's, that's central to our Christian witness. Those are the two, I think, principal takeaways that I would uh, leave with people. <clears throat> yeah, thank you, Vinod. Uh, so the God who suffers and our solidarity with folks who are also suffering, especially commun the communal aspect of it as profound. Uh, and you talk in the first part of the book about the need for lament uh, in the face of all of this suffering. Uh, so the question that I'd like you to answer for us is why do you think Christians are uncomfortable about questioning God and bringing this pain and these doubts to him? Well, in, in a short sentence, it is because Christians have a God who is too small. <clears throat> God who they think is there to sort of uh, punish them every time they sort of uh, veer off the, you know, the well-worn track. Uh, it's a religion based on fear, not love. And if we are really secure in the love of God, just like a child who is secure in the love of its parents, we will not fear bringing any of our questions, our doubts, our confusion, even our anger at God to him because we know that he knows us 
we can trust him. He gives us space to be ourselves and he wants to journey with us. He shares those questions. He enters into our situations. Now, if that is the God we worship, then we wouldn't be afraid to bring all of life into our conversation with God. So I think that a lot of Christians, their view of God and their prayer life is so childish, so narrow, uh, because it's based on fear and not on trust and love. <clears throat> My next question will be of particular interest to our audience, who are mostly women. Uh, I'll break it up to two parts. We see unjust suffering in our world and in the lives of people known to us, including ourselves. What are your thoughts on unjust suffering, disproportionately, sometimes uniquely faced by women around the globe? My thoughts, well, it's true. First, we need to acknowledge it. Uh, for example, in my own country, uh, Sri Lanka, if you look at who are the the biggest contributors to our economy. It's women. I mean, quite apart from mothering and homemaking, it's women who work in garment factories, women who work as tea pluckers on tea estates, because tea is one of our principal exports. Mm -hmm. There are women who go as housemaids to the richer Asian countries or to the Middle East, and they remit uh, foreign currency, foreign remittances. So a lot of the foreign exchange, the hard currency that we as a poor nation depend on is earned by women. And they in turn use very little of those resources because all our hard currency is used by the more affluent class of people, say to send their children to expensive international schools or to universities abroad. So that's clearly uh, unjust, it's, you know, so I think we begin by acknowledging these things publicly and asking the question, why? Why do we tolerate such blatant exploitation and inequality? Thank you, Vinod. So following on from women's experiences of suffering, what would you like to say to encourage smart women who grew up and continue to belong to sections of the American Evangelical Church with hierarchical gender ideology or practices? Well, I would say just get out, <laughs> leave those churches. I don't know how any intelligent woman can, can remain in a church where her gifts are not recognized and utilized. So I would say to people, just leave those churches. Well, I, I, I put my life where my mouth is. I mean, I have refused funding from churches which do not have women in leadership and sometimes they've offered me substantial amounts of money and i've said no thank you because i i have i cannot be supported by a church with whose theology i profoundly disagree well thank you for doing that i i wish i wish more men would i wish more men would do that yeah, thank you for doing that. And I and I didn't ask you beforehand this question, so I don't know what I'm putting on the spot, but what would you want to say to the the men in those churches as they kind of you know come into contact with these women who kind of feel like an anomaly to them? Well, often it's just hypocrisy, isn't it? Because um, if 
if you believe that say um, the uh, it's part of creation order where women submit to men where men have leadership and exercise authority a creation order applies beyond the church so you should say then we shouldn't have women who are in politics we shouldn't have ceos of of corporations we shouldn't have university professors or even high school heads of departments any any woman who is exercising authority over men those positions are barred now very few churches actually teach that mm -hmm. so if a church were to consistently practice that then i would respect them even though i disagreed with their theology i would respect their attempt to be consistent mm -hmm. but more than 90% of these churches who have this theology this limit male headship to church and to preaching. Right. Also, if you believe that women are more gullible or more easily misled doctrinally, then why are we allowing women or encouraging women to teach children? Because children are the most likely to be misled. So it's the men in the church who should be teaching the children and the women who should be teaching the mature men who are less likely to be misled. So I think I would want to say to the men, you're just, you're just hypocritical. You're not practicing what you say you believe. Be consistent. I saw a question on the chat saying, leave and go where? Well, I'm sure there are churches which are egalitarian, where women can be part of the leadership team, even senior pastors or priests or whatever, and, and preach. So join those churches while challenging the men in the churches that you leave behind. <clears throat> Thank you. I know that that's a question that many women in our, uh, uh, many of our constituents, constituents, let's say, struggle with and talk about in small and large groups. Uh, well, my wife also used to tell women in some circles, if you have a gift, just exercise it, whatever your pastor says. You just go ahead and do it. Don't waste your time arguing. And then either they will recognize it and change, or they will try to stop you. And then if they stop you, you just leave. And, and I would say to the men, it's you as men who need to speak up for women. It's very difficult for women because then, you know, they're accused of having ulterior motives. So it's the men who need to stand up for women in many of our churches and Christian organizations. Mm -hmm. Let's talk a little about the university and because you talk about hope and I would like to ask you about the nature of hope in the university setting. Uh, as those who love the university, what are some ways we can embrace hope as a prophetic way of life? How can the vision of God's alternative reality transform how we live in the present in the university world? Well, uh, our gospel is fundamentally about reconciliation and we have a glimpse of that reconciliation uh, in the resurrection, the way the, the story ends in Revelation 22 uh, of the the, the multinational uh, worship around the throne of God, the kings of the earth bringing all that is good and precious in every culture to enrich the life uh, of the new Jerusalem. 
So that vision of a reconciled humanity in which all the riches of cultural diversity are brought to the worship of God, that should be modeled by Christian communities in campuses. So for many years, I've tried to, to challenge the intervarsity leadership to uh, do away with these racially segregated or ethnically segregated chapters. Because if you have ethnically segregated chapters, you're preaching a very different gospel, individualistic gospel, not a gospel of reconciliation. And so those intervarsity groups are simply reflecting the segregation, the fragmentation of the wider American church. And this is often a stumbling block to people who come from abroad, from countries that are much more diverse in terms of linguistic you know, diversity or even ethnic diversity than many American college campuses where 99% of your students and faculty speak English. And yet to see this fragmentation, especially on racial grounds, is a scandal. So uh, my challenge is often met by what I call an evasive silence. And if people do respond to my challenge, it's usually to say something like, well, but we get more numbers this way by having separate ethnic or racial groups. But then I ask, well, but numbers of what? Are these people really disciples of Christ? What do they feel they're being baptized into? Are they being baptized into a white church or an Asian church or a black church? Or is it the global body of Christ? And then again, there is this evasive silence. So I don't believe that we have anything to contribute to the university uh, by way of challenge or hope if often the university is far ahead of us as a church in modeling this unity in diversity. Anything to the professors? Uh, professors, the, the, the people who stay long-term on the university and outlive so many student generations, uh, how- Yes, well, I- I think this is where professors and students and staff need to come together from time to time, rather than living in these silos, to talk about the needs in their universities. What are the issues of justice in the university that they should address as a Christian community? What can they do uh, to address those, to speak with one voice? And also for Christian professors to be available as role models, perhaps as mentors for every new generation of Christian students, particularly those in, who want to pursue the particular academic discipline that the professor is, um, is teaching. So these are ways in which professors and students and staff can form a Christian community of reconciliation, a Christian community of hope. Uh, but sadly, like I said, often the undergraduate ministries are separate from the graduate and faculty ministries. Students and faculty don't know each other. Mm -hmm. When I look back on my undergraduate days in the University of London, I still remember two or three professors who, even though I didn't know them personally, were role models for me 
because we could invite them to come and speak in our chapters uh, and uh, they modeled for us how you could be a, a committed Christian and yet uh, have intellectual credibility in the university. And, and I think undergraduate students need those, those role models. And I think the professors also need students to challenge them. So I know in some universities in, in Asia, in Africa, where students have invited professors to come and tell them uh, how as Christians, they chose their particular research area mm -hmm. or what does their Christian faith, what difference their Christian faith makes to the way that they teach their particular discipline. And often professors will say, we've never been asked those questions and it forces them to think about whether they're living you know, a compartmentalized existence, separating their Christian faith from their academic research or the way that they teach. So there is a mutual exchange here. And that's the way I think we work at building Christian community on campus. Yeah, so thank you, Vinod. And uh, would you talk a little bit more about how suffering is at the heart of God, how he suffers for us, with us, and because of us. And I think you were emphasizing the with us part. Would you talk a little bit about that? Well, suffering is an aspect of love, isn't it? If you love someone and the person you love does not um, respond to your love, you feel pain. The more deeply you love someone and the more deeply those people reject your love or ignore your love, the more grieved you are. And you see this in very early on in the Bible, in Genesis chapter 6, where it speaks of God, very strong language, God even grieving uh, uh, over the wickedness of humanity and relenting or repenting, rather, uh, of uh, having uh, created humanity. Now, this is anthropomorphic language. Uh, but actually, it's saying that there is in the very heart of God something equivalent to our emotions of grief, of pain, of anger, uh, because God is deeply involved in what he has created. He gives us the space to be ourselves, to develop ourselves. He doesn't control us like a puppet master. He accompanies us. Uh, even in our willful, willful disobedience. So he chooses, he chooses not to abandon humanity and start all over again, but to be with us in our sinfulness, in the suffering that we experience largely as a result of our sin. Uh, and so that is the God whom we find revealing himself step by step in the biblical story. And then the culmination of that is in the life and the death and the resurrection of Christ, where God himself comes among us and lives a fully human life and shows us what it means to be God as well as to be human. So that we can tell people, if you want to know what God is like, just look at that man, that tortured, battered body that's hanging on a Roman gallows. That is what God is like. And that's a revolutionary, radical message to say there's nothing like it in the world's religions. You know, the suffering God, the God who allows us to, uh, you know, just, just not just marginalize him, but 
but crucify him, torture him. And yet while God shares that, that suffering, he's not overcome by that suffering. And that's, that's why he's able to help us. Mm -hmm. Because the resurrection tells us that suffering and death do not have the last word. Um, yeah. Thank you. And we have a question. Uh, Jan says, you mentioned racially segregated fellowship groups as problematic. We have informally segregated churches for the most part. What suggestions do you have for moving towards more inclusive congregations? Yes, this is the heart of the issue, isn't it? And I often tell people, if you want to have an inclusive multi-ethnic or multicultural church, you must begin with an inclusive multicultural leadership team. Mm -hmm. you, you, you cannot have, say, just uh, white only or Korean or Chinese sort of leadership or black leadership and expect people in the congregation who are from other ethnic cultural backgrounds to feel a sense of belonging. So you have to start with multicultural leadership and then accommodate the diversity in your styles of worship, in the kind of preaching. So there has to be, you know, uh, a lot of conversation about these things. Uh, and building multicultural churches, and that's the only church that I believe <laughs> merits the name church, uh, is hard work. Uh, Rowan Williams, the former Archbishop of Canterbury, actually said, being church is hard work. And he was speaking there in the context of the whole debate in the Anglican Church on, uh, on same-sex unions and getting people from both ends of the spectrum, the theological spectrum, to actually come together and dialogue and debate and argue. Uh, was tough, but that's what we expect of leadership, of Christian leadership. It's so easy just to just to leave and just just go and start your own group with like-minded people and to run away from the challenge of reconciliation. But then when we do that, what we are forming are more like religious ghettos, religious clubs, rather than churches, because the church should be the place where the risen Christ is breaking down these dividing walls of hostility, Ephesians chapter two. And, and the church should be a foretaste of the new humanity. That's how we model hope. Any other questions? If you have a question, feel free to uh, ask it. Well, I, I see a question in the chat. Should oh, I read it? Sure. So here we are in a gender-specific fellowship group. What are your thoughts <laughs> about this? Yeah, well, there's nothing wrong with gender-specific or ethnic-specific or language-specific fellowship groups, but, but then that is not the church. It would be a subgroup of the church. Mm -hmm. So if your only fellowship is with people of the same gender or the same uh, culture or economic class, uh, then you are really not being challenged. Your blind spots are not being exposed because that happens only when we meet with people who are different to us. And so along with a gender specific fellowship group, you need uh, settings where you 
you meet with people uh, who are different from other other gender yeah male male christians yeah i, I don't disagree with uh, what you talk about the vision of the church and the multi-ethnic piece i think sometimes the practical uh, reason why there are like uh, ethnic specific stuff happening on the ground is because when invariably when you go to a large group, uh, there's only a handful of people who are of minority ethnic groups and they just get dwarfed or swallowed in that, uh, in the dominant culture. And I think sometimes the rationale seems to be to have some of those specific uh, uh, groups so that, uh, so that your cultural expression of even the faith is welcome. I think that might be the justification. Do you have any things to say to that? Well, yes, that is often the case. But again, if you're convinced that the gospel is not individualistic, it's about the, the new humanity that emerges on the other side of the cross then you will go to the leadership of that group and, and challenge them and say, look, uh, uh, you need to be more multi-ethnic, multicultural, or it, it might be economic difference. And say, all of you come from very privileged backgrounds, and yet there are people in the congregation who come from rather poor families. So why don't you actually appoint someone from a poorer family uh, into your leadership team? You know, talk with them. But just leaving and forming another homogeneous group is not the answer because you're actually running away from being church. Okay, I have about three questions here. I'll read them one at a time. Eileen says, uh, you mentioned women leaving churches where women are artificially or inappropriately held back. What about sharing uh, in the suffering of Christ who was oppressed and persecuted? Well, I don't think that uh, that kind of uh, suffering and persecution uh, is, is really what I'm talking about in the book, because uh, I think when you look at the way um, uh, in the prophets and also Jesus, they, they confronted the suffering that was due to injustice. Um, they... Um, they spoke up for people uh, who were exploited, treated unjustly. Uh, and that's what we're doing. Like I said, the men in the church should stand up and speak on behalf of the women who are not allowed to exercise their God-given gifts, who are treated unequally. Um, so uh, I think that, that when we are called to suffer, we are also called to, to say to the people who inflict that suffering that what they're doing is unjust. Mm -hmm. Now we don't return injustice with you know, resentment and anger and we don't treat them the way that they treat us, but still we need to confront the fact that our suffering is undeserved. Our suffering is actually unjust. Um, so it's both, it's speaking up for those others who are treated unjustly, but also 
protesting the fact that you know our our, our suffering is not uh, something that should be perpetuated in the Christian community. I'm going to read Jackie's question. Uh, she says, in an age where we have access to so much information about human suffering all over the world, how do we engage well without being overcome? I frequently feel a lack of capacity to engage both the world and my immediate context but find a lot of challenge from others if I am not fully engaged in many issues. I hope I understand the question, but I would say, I mean, we begin where we are and also with what we recognize as our gifts and the opportunities that we have to do what we can in a local area of injustice or suffering but we bring our knowledge of suffering in other places and the way people are responding to suffering in other places to inform what we do locally. So I think that global awareness is important even as we engage locally. And Jessica says, what you just said about staying and building a multi-ethnic church, doesn't that conflict with what you said about women and men leaving that church? Well, well, no, because I'm not, I'm speaking here of, um, of uh, you know, uh, 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 wherever there is hypocrisy, the abuse of scripture, we have to expose it, we have to challenge it. And if we are not then given a voice, what are we doing in that church? Um, we're just passive spectators. Christ's vision for the church is that we use whatever gifts that he gives us through the Holy Spirit to enrich and build up the church. So if we are not in a position where we are given uh, such opportunities, then let's go to places where we can use those opportunities, those gifts that God has given us. Yeah, I think for many women, at least, the issue is uh, uh, moving out uh, feels a little scary because the kind of uh, churches that would welcome their gifts would be what would be considered theologically liberal places uh, and that the and, and the women who are leaving uh, have conservative theology in terms of like what they believe about the bible and things like that and, and about jesus so well, I think i'm that's sure that's true. i don't think that is quite true you can find many orthodox churches which do have women in positions of leadership uh, they're not all liberal um, so you just have to go go and look for them. Mm -hmm. And they may be black churches or whatever, right? You might be the only white person. So so then you're also making the black church a little more multi, multi-ethnic. Um, yes, we actually do have women in our community who 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 do that, you know, who might be like the, the minority white person in a black church kind of thing. Yes. Yeah. And uh, read Karen's question that just came. Can you talk a bit about hope and suffering being companions? 
So much of white American evangelicalism is so shallow in its teaching on both of these. Um, well, the reason I call the book Sarah's Laughter is because, you know, there are two or three places we read where Sarah laughs. And the first laughter is a laughter of doubt, the laughter of questioning when she's told that despite her age, that she's going to bear a child. And then the final laughter is the laughter of joy. Uh, when, when the promise is fulfilled. And I say that actually you cannot have that final laughter, the laughter of joy without going through the skeptical laughter, the questioning, the doubt of being honest with God and saying, you know, are these things really true? Are they really going to happen? Uh, it's like what I said earlier, that there is no resurrection joy without the cross. Uh, and it says in Hebrews 12, doesn't it, that Christ for the joy that was set before him endured the cross and despised the shame. So hope and suffering are always brought together in, in scripture. Uh, so that we, we groan with creation, Romans 8, uh, and, and groaning in hope uh, is really what the Christian life is all about. We are longing for that new world. We are praying your kingdom come, your will be done on earth, because God's will is not done on earth. So uh, that yearning, that longing, to see the Lordship of Jesus acknowledged and realized throughout his creation uh, is, is what sustains us even as we suffer and share in the suffering of other people. And our act of embracing the suffering of other people is also a witness to that hope because we're saying that even though we, we live in a world that is not yet redeemed, a world that is under the sway of suffering and death, yet suffering and death will not have the last word because Jesus Christ is Lord. So suffering and hope, yeah, are, are intertwined and we cannot have one without the other. <clears throat> yeah, and what you said about groaning and yearning, you had uh, in the book, you had described hope in several ways. And uh, I think what, what captured me was the idea of hope as struggle. Uh, and uh, and the, outside of the university context for you know, regular people, what would that look like to, uh, to uh, live towards God's future with both longing and groaning? Um, that can be our last question. Well, I mean, we, like I said earlier, we can engage in local acts of compassion, mercy, justice, because we know that whatever we do, when it is aligned with God's kingdom purposes, his kingdom values, is eternal. You know, 1 Corinthians 15, that great chapter on the resurrection, ends with those words, you know, that uh, whatever we do is not in vain. And it's only the Christian who can say that, that the work that we do from uh, morning till evening 
if it reflects God's kingdom priorities, is of eternal value, that somehow it will be resurrected on the last day along with us. And that gives significance to the work that we do, our work for justice, our work for reconciliation. So in a way that we cannot grasp today, uh, all of those works uh, that um, promote truth, that promote justice, that promote beauty, will be there in the final kingdom of God for, for all of us to enjoy for eternity. And that's, that's the greatest motivating power that I can think of, you know. Uh, that last question, the answer to the last question was uplifting and uh, gives us renewed vigor to uh, go about in the pursuits that God has called each of us to do. So thank you, Vinod, for taking the time to talk with us and we appreciated all your thoughts. Well, thank you. I'm very privileged to have this conversation. <laughs> we hope this peek into our book club might inspire you to join us for one of these events in the future. If you're listening to this episode in real time, you could look into the next discussion that we're having on the book Vocation Across the Academy, a new vocabulary for higher education. We'll share all of the details for that book club in the show notes, or you can find out about this or other book clubs at thewell.intervarsity.org. All Shall Be Well is hosted by me, Anne Boyd, and is a production of InterVarsity's Women in the Academy and Professions. We acknowledge that the opinions of our guests may not necessarily represent the ministry, doctrine, or policies of InterVarsity. You can find more information about our podcast and the other cool things we are doing at thewell.intervarsity.org. Our work is funded solely through the donations of our listeners and supporters. So if you enjoyed this podcast, you might consider joining our support team by donating even five or $10 per month. You can find out how to do this at give2iv.org slash the well, or through our donation link at the well. To ensure others will find and enjoy our podcasts as well, please consider rating and reviewing our podcast and sharing it with others. We look forward to being with you again next time.